section, chapter three. I need wait one two three four five six seven. I need seven volunteers. Carson, uh, verse seven. AJ, verse eight. Ben, verse nine. Brendan, verse ten. How many more do you need? Melissa, verse eleven. I need two more. Sammy, verse twelve. Caitlin, verse thirteen. Yeah, that's right. All right. Everybody has their Bibles open. No. Let's follow along as we all read. And to the angel of the church. I'm just trying to keep this low. low you all right? <laughs> all right. All right, Carson, go ahead. You may, you may continue. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For that's how, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come for thee, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out with him. And I will write, I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which is commended down of heaven, from my sins, sorry, from my God, and I'll write upon him my name. He that hath an ear, let him hear with the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia church period. From 1500 to 1900 A.D., we finally made it out of the Dark Ages. This period actually begins with the close of the Dark Ages, and it ends the conclusion of the 19th century, or the time known as the Modern Industrial Age. The Philadelphia period introduces us to the greatest, now listen, it introduces us to the greatest missionary activity that has ever taken place on the face of this planet, ever. Only to be usurped by the 144,000 Jewish witnesses during the tribulation period. More on that in just a few weeks. More fruit is produced and harvested than at any other time in history. More people are reached with the gospel and more Bible-believing churches are started than at any other time thus far in human history. It is a known fact. You will see that by the end of tonight. On your outline, Philadelphia. Anybody want to take a crack as to what it means? Love of the word? No. Love of something? No. What is the city Philadelphia known as? Brotherly love. Uh, Liberty, yeah, but who said it? Thank you, Ben. Brotherly love is what Philadelphia means. Brotherly love. And as always, the name and the definition of the name supernaturally represents the characteristics of this period. Case in point, 1 Peter 1.22 Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Well, when you obey the truth through the Spirit, something happens as a result. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, passionately. It means there's a fire in your heart. It's not just a, hey, I am fond of being around you and in your presence. No. <laughs> This is a love as though the person sitting next to you is your brother. As though the person sitting next to you is your sister. That is what this is. Also, you can write down 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we, we the love of God. That reckless love we just sang about. Because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brethren. You can read that two ways. You can read that as in your fellow brothers of the human race. And so you love the lost so much that you're willing to tell them the gospel, what they must do to be saved. And also your brethren here, your brothers and sisters in Christ. On your outline, the era of the incredible revival of humanity 
That's what this summarizes and encapsulates Philadelphia. This is the era of the incredible revival of humanity as World Missions takes the English Bible to the ends of the earth. We touched on that the last couple of weeks, looking at how God was starting to work and was starting to, to form and forge His Word during this time so that common, ordinary people can hear what God's Word has to say. Now we come to Satan's attack method. And is that a blank on your outline or is it right there? There's nothing. There's nothing? It's not even on there. It's really blank. Oh, okay. I guess that whole entire point is missing. Satan's attack method during this time. I love it. Regroup. Because during this great time in human history, everything that he's been doing over the last thousand years that we've looked at during the Dark Ages... It's completely shattered. It's almost all but completely gone. And he can't stop what's coming next. I teased it last week. The night is darkest just before the dawn, and the dawn is coming. We just got through the dark ages where the word of God was taken out of the hands of the common man, and so darkness was upon the face of the deep, metaphorically speaking. And now the Bible is back, and there is no stopping that light. That light I've talked about it before. If we darkened this entire room, we blacked out these windows, you have one little flicker of a light, you'll be able to see for a far, far distance, and it'll draw others to that light as well. To regroup, because, man, his offense just got shattered. You'll see that how later on tonight. This period brings about the Reformation. We talked about this, the Reformation period and the Reformers. You see, last week we talked about the Crusades and the Inquisitions and all the atrocities that happened there. Because of that, everybody in the world was starting to see, wow, they had how many chances to try to take back Jerusalem and they failed miserably? And how much bloodshed was lost? Oh, and what's happening over here with these Inquisitions? What was their crimes? They possessed a copy of the scriptures? They memorized parts of the Bible and you're doing all of that torturous stuff to them? Now everyone is starting to see what Rome is actually doing and everyone in the world is starting to take a step back because of the light of all of the martyrs, the light of all of the people willing to lay down their lives for their fellow man. People were starting to take notice. And as a result of it, it led way for the reformers to come through and to do this awesome job, kind of bring Rome to this point of internal conflict. Now, and I touched on this last week, but anybody know what this is? I imagine everybody who plays football and or plays Madden will understand what this is. But this is a typical offensive play in football. So here... You have the defense, a V for Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church. What? You like it? I'll show you where I got it from. So you have the quarterback, who is Jesus Christ, because he's the one calling the shots. He's the one who's dictating the play. He's the one who's going to decide where the ball goes. And no, sometimes the QB makes that decision. In this case, it definitely works. Number two not to be confused with R2, is the Holy Spirit who has the football. The Holy Spirit is going to hand things off to Jesus, the quarterback, but Jesus, he's going to give it to the Anabaptists. All of those people we looked at over the last two weeks, the Hussites, the Bogomiles, the, the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Lollards, all of these groups that basically believe the same things that you and I do. They believe that the Bible should be in the hands of the common man. He passes the Holy Spirit and the Word of God off to them. And you know what the Reformers are doing? John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox. Martin Luther's really the only one that's solid out of that entire group, even though he had some wayward doctrine. You know what they're doing? They're blocking. They're blocking the defense so that we could take the ball and go where there's an opening. And that's what happened. Rome and the Catholic Church during this time was so caught up and consumed with fighting the Reformers in the Reformation period that they didn't even see, uh-oh, we got the ball now, and we're going to run this rock right into the end zone. I love it. That's what happens. You're going to see it. I can't wait. Like I said, this is a watershed moment in church history. So let's get to it. The commendation. He says they have little strength. 
They kept the Lord's word and they have not denied his name. We saw that in verse 8. It was very, very clear. They kept his word even though they had a little strength. Remember last week in Sardis how it said that those of you guys who are in Sardis, those of you guys who have not defiled yourselves with the world, you've not defiled yourselves with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He said, strengthen those things that remain. And I challenge you guys, especially towards the, the end of the school year. I know for me, I was always just worn out and exhausted during this time of year. And I wasn't even thinking about camp. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, who should I be inviting? Oftentimes, I would always get sidetracked with just trying to finish my projects and my papers. And it can become so easy to just let the things that are about to die, die off. No, God challenges the church and He challenges us tonight to strengthen the things that remain. Even if you're weak, even if you're worn out and run down from all the standardized testing you guys have been doing, even though you have a little strength, stay close to His Word. Stay close to the things He wants you to do, and He'll take care of the rest. He always does. Doesn't He? Don't you have moments in your life, even just this past week, that show and prove that He has your best interest in mind? He'll do it. He'll take care of you. And not only that, they didn't deny His name. I love it. You know, I think we just touched on it uh, Sunday, although it might have been one of the other things, the VBS training or Mexico training. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, uh, what did Christ say to Paul? Paul's sitting here saying, I am so weak right now. I got this thorn in my side. I got this thorn in my flesh, and I'm so weak. How can I possibly move on? And Christ is saying, hey, it's okay, because when you're weak, I'm strong. This is an opportunity for you to just... Let me take control of the reins and steer things my way. I love it. And not only that, next bullet point, he says, Because of their faithfulness, the Lord opened a door of ministry unto them that no one could shut. He said that he will cause those that were true heretics to come to their feet of re in repentance to God. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Remember we talked about them? These are the guys who they took promises in the Old Testament that don't belong to the church, and they stole them. These are the Nicolaitans that we've been covering the last couple weeks. These are the, the guys like Origen and the Catholic Church who have this hierarchy established where they seek to rob the common man. He's saying that, look, I will cause them that do lie, I will make them come to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because now, the supposed professionals of their day, they're getting all these questions from common, ordinary people who don't have the answers. And then a common man comes along with a common Bible and says, hey, I know the answers and I can show you. And then the priest or the Nicolaitan pastor is like, wait, how is it that you, can you please show me? Can you open up that book and show me? Because, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church my whole entire life, and I thought that that was the right way. Can you show me what that book has to say? And hordes of people from false doctrines from the Catholic Church were coming to know Christ. That's what happened. And he says he's going to keep them from the hour of temptation. That's more prophetic in nature. He's basically telling them that, hey, you guys during this church period, you are not going to see the tribulation period. You're not going to see the hour of temptation, which is a phraseology talking about the events that are going to happen in the last days, as we're going to see here in a couple weeks. Man, it's good to finally see some commendation coming to the church. Now we get to the condemnation. Ready? You got a lot to write down here. It is? Oh. Hmm. I guess that means that the answer is none. We just read it. Jesus Christ, for the first time in all six of these church periods, He does not have one negative thing to say about this church. Not one. It's the only church period, in fact. Everything is a commendation. They did everything right. Oh, I can't wait to get to the significant events that happen during this period. Coincidentally, here we are. First bullet point. We see, and we've already talked about, but I just have it down here again for, for the sake of it. Rome was almost completely dismantled and discredited. 
I'm telling you guys, it was this close before that harlot, as Revelation 17 and 18 describes her, it was this close before she was completely and utterly dismantled. No, no, no. See, Satan, he's regrouping. He's like, all right, I got my teeth knocked in here during these 400 years. I'm going to have to take a step back, regroup, rethink some things before I revise my attack. That is a play on words. You'll see that here by the end of tonight. He has to revise his plan of attack before 1900 rolls around and the last church period that we're going to cover next week. But I want to check some out here. Look again at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is, what's that word? Holy. holy. When you think about something that's holy, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Oh, godly. Uh, think about an object. The holy Bible. Yeah. He that is true. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think about the word true or truth, I think about John 17, 17, where Jesus says, he's praying and he says to God the Father, sanctify them, his disciples, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's right. He that is holy, he that is true. He that hath, now check out this interesting phrase. He that hath the key of David. Well, what do keys do? They unlock and open doors that you previously could not open up. And they close doors that nobody else can open if they wanted to. I love that. That's what he's describing about this church. Now, I get holy, I get true, the key of David. That is quite an interesting phraseology. When you think of David, what are some things that come to your mind? All right, fine. I was going to hopefully open it up for more discussion, but God must have known that uh, I'm short on time because we've got a lot to cover tonight. But yeah, that's the answer I was looking for. He's the only man in 1 Samuel chapter 13 to be called a man after God's own heart. The only person in all of Scripture. Okay, so that helps me out a little bit. And I know... That in Luke 6.45, that it's out of the abundance of our hearts that our mouths do what? Speak. Okay, getting somewhere now. You know what it is that David spoke the most about? The commandments, the statutes, the judgments. All synonyms for. All synonyms for. God's word. God's word. What's the biggest chapter in all of the Bible? Psalm 119, where each and every single verse in that entire chapter is all about David's love for God's Word. All right. A man after God's own heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth will speak. And David spoke the most about God's Word. Do you think that might have something to do with it? You see, the key of David, it's a love for the Word of God, but not just that. It's an obedience to do what the Word of God says. John 14, 15 says, and this is Jesus, If ye love me, keep my commandments. If you love him, you will obey him. With a verse like that, try flipping it around and, and, and applying it that way. I'll never forget this. This is the verse that broke me. Again, two years of my saved life not walking with Christ, and then I was at a church camp, campfire night, and I did not read my Bible much at all those last two years of being saved. I was about ready to go into my sophomore year. Didn't memorize any scripture. But somehow, some way, that verse was stuck in my heart, and I couldn't get rid of it. And I remember thinking, all right, if I've not been obeying God these last two years of my life that I claim to be saved, what does that say about my love for Him? Lord, I do not love You. I knew I was saved, but I didn't love Him. I did not love the lover of my soul who left the 99 to come seek and, get and save me who came after me. 
and it broke me. You see, the key of David, it's not just having a love for the Word of God, it's doing what God tells you to do. You can even write down John 8.31. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye keep my word. And not only that, look again at verse 8. He says again, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Why? Why did he set this door open for this church? For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my what? My word. And then jump down to verse 10. Because thou hast kept what? The word. These guys were faithful. In order to obey God's word, in order to keep God's word, you need to have God's word. I want to show you guys another one of those verses that just completely just causes you to just stand and be like, wow. Whoops. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Turn over to Psalm 12. That guy will come back up later. I guess I forgot. That's exactly what I wanted to show you. To give you all nightmares. That's what will cause you to be silent. Psalm 12. I guess I forgot to add one slide to that. Man, way to really kill a moment, Howell. All right. All right, so to reset the stage, one of these passages that will just cause you to be like, huh, that's interesting, and then you look at the historical significance and you're like, oh wow, how deep and how vast this book is. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Can I get a reader? Sam, loud and clear. <clears throat> the words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Wow, thank you for adding the emphasis. It's almost like you knew where I was going with this. The words of the Lord are pure. That means holy. That means spotless. It means infallible, inerrant, incorru incorruptible. There are no errors in it whatsoever. It is pure. I work for a steel manufacturer, and the way we heat treat steel, the reason we heat treat it is because it makes that steel more fortified. It draws out the impurities as it goes through this heat treating process so the steel can be used and applied to whatever application a customer needs it for. The words of the Lord are pure, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified how many times, Sam? Seven times. Now, keep that in mind, but look again at verse 7. God is saying here, Thou shalt keep, actually David is saying here, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Yes, when God had his men, his vessels, write out the Bible, he inspired them. That word inspired just simply means God breathed. You write down 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration. And that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. That's how God spoke and wrote the Bible. But as soon as that author, whether it was Paul, Peter, John, uh, Daniel, anybody in the Old Testament, Moses, as soon as that author was done writing down what God inspired them and breathed through them to write... Instantly, God went into the preservation mode where he preserved and protected and kept those scriptures from being tampered with. And as we've seen already in history, has the Bible been tampered with? Yes. But he promised that his words would always be somewhere. And according to this, he was saying that they were going to go through a purification process seven times. Now, wouldn't you know it? Coincidence, I'm sure. There just so happens to be seven English translations of the Bible that take place during this time. On your outline. 
You have the Wycliffe Bible. We talked about him last week. You have the Tyndale Bible. He took Wycliffe's Bible and purified it more. He had more manuscripts that suddenly became available that weren't during Wycliffe's day, and he helped improve upon it. Then you have the Coverdale Bible of 1535, the Matthew Bible of 1537, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, seven English translations, all that were improving upon the inferiorities of its predecessor. And the next one getting closer and closer and closer. And you might be thinking, oh, wait a second, Corey. The Bible says it's purified seven times. And I see the one you have there as the eighth one. Yeah, you know why? Seven is the number of what in the Bible? Anybody know? Completion. Completion. You know what eight is? New beginnings. You trace that number eight throughout the Bible, you'll see a pattern that God has lined out that the number eight it is a the number of new beginnings. Carson. Wouldn't having eight mean there's been seven purifications too? That's what they are. I mean there it's going through God's word as a whole is going through a purification process. That's what those seven were. Doesn't mean like you're going one to two, that's one. That's like one purification when you have another you have seven. Well no, because the one started with something. Uh, is that a purification or is that just the beginning? The first one would be the purification because it's the first one into English. It's taking the manuscripts. And again, some of them were in English when you study out manuscript, or manuscript evidence, but that was the first one where he compiled together as a book, which is what Bible means, a compilation of books. That was the first one. All right. But eight, the new beginnings. The King James Bible of 1611. Oh, we don't have the time. I'm telling you guys, they pump out Bibles yearly this day and age. Every single year they do. And I'm telling you guys, there may be some well-intended people that are on the boards of these committee, well-intended, but I'm telling you, the Bible's the number one best-selling book of all time. There's a reason why there's a new version being pumped out year after year after year after year. And you want to talk about the qualifications of men who are able to look at the manuscripts that are around and translate and come up with a new version year after year? They don't hold a candle to the men who are part of this committee. And the work, the seven-year meticulous work they had to go through. I wanted to take that. I, when I teach this class in the adults, I take Philadelphia and I spread it out to three weeks. I'm trying to do all of that in one week to keep on our time frame for the rest of Revelation. I spend one week just giving you guys a brief glimpse as to what needed to happen in order to meticulously make sure that every single word of every single manuscript was accounted for. And the checks and balances system that they had looking over each other's work to make sure that there were no errors. Those translators of today don't hold a candle to these men and their methods that they incorporated. Not at all. But hey, you know what we find out? You know what's interesting about Satan? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that Satan has his own false ministers to preach his own false gospel, where they preach a false uh, Holy Spirit, where they have false uh, churches. He has false everything. He has counterfeits of everything that Jesus Christ incorporates. Is it any wonder and surprise that he would have counterfeit Bibles as well? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul even writes, there were some of people in Thessalonica that were disturbed because they got a letter as from Paul that the Lord had already come back. And so people in Thessalonica were freaking out thinking that the rapture already happened. And Paul's like, hey, don't be soon shaken that somebody forged my hand and forged a letter saying it was from me. That kind of stuff was happening back in Paul's day. Satan knew the monarch of books was coming, and he knew what God was about to do with this. So he starts enlisting some helpers to try to stop this. So on your outline, prior to the King James Bible, there were coincidental counterattacks. First thing, you have the invasion of England by the Spanish Armada. I don't know if you guys have studied this in any kind of world history or not, but at this time in history, Spain had the strongest navy in all of the world. 
They should have completely conquered England, and all of England today should be speaking Spanish. As they're making their way across the English Channel, there just so happened to be a massive storm that came and wiped out a vast majority of the Armada. Countless ships, thousands of men, all lost their lives to try to overthrow England. Again, note the date, 1588. Next, we have the assassination attempt of King James. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the infamous gunpowder plot, for I shall think of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. That is a nursery rhyme that is pertaining to this event in history. What was happening? The opening session of Parliament was about to take place on November 5th. But on October 26th, a lord, or you know, an elder, got a, an anonymous tip that there was going to be an attack and an explosion on Parliament. And so he sent some soldiers down to the basement, and sure enough, they found five Roman Catholic Jesuits which oversimplified the Jesuits are the Roman Catholic Special Forces, quite literally. Five Roman Catholic Jesuits who were about ready to ignite a bomb that just so happened to be seated directly underneath King James's throne. The man who led the attack is Guy Fawkes. Has anybody seen this mask before? There's an infamous comic book that's made about it, and then they turned it into a Hollywood movie years ago. But there's a uh, uh, hacking group known as Anonymous. They've done a lot of big high-tech hacking jobs in the last couple years. And, and in the early stages of Antifa, they used to wear those masks when they would go out rioting and burning stuff down to the ground. They would have his mask on. This is the mask of Guy Fawkes, the guy who led this revolt. And he's looked at and treated as a hero in history because he was revolting against a tyrannical government. Now, you study out the plan of what these guys had, it sounds like something straight out of ISIS's handbook. As soon as the bomb went off in Parliament, they had guns staged underneath. They were going to go up and take the city of London and start shooting and causing mass chaos. Had it not been for an anonymous letter that thwarted their plan. And next... Oh boy. Point number three. The Roman Catholic Church's Dewey Rhymes Bible. Check out the year of that one. 1610, a year before the King James Bible was published. This was translated from corrupt texts going all the way back to who? Origin in Alexandria, Egypt. And contrary to what they say, this was not the Roman Catholic Church's attempt to try to uh, uh, help fellow Roman Catholics in their walk with God. Absolutely not. This was a deceptive Jesuit-planted Bible. I've studied it out myself. It was a deceptive Jesuit-planted Bible that was used to try to encourage or win back people to Rome who had been lost to Bible believers who were witnessing to them. And I know that because of the fact the Tridentine Profession of Faith of 1564, which was still in session during this time in 1610, says, I acknowledge, this is something that people had to profess. This was their profession of faith. I acknowledge the sacred scripture according to that sense which Holy Mother Church has held and holds. Who's the Holy Mother Church? This Catholic Church. To whom it belongs to decide upon the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. Nor will I ever receive and interpret the Scripture except according to the unanimous consent of the who? The Church Fathers. That profession of faith was still implemented in the Catholic Church at the time their Bible came out. It wasn't about helping Catholics in their walk with God. Oh, you guys got a Bible? Oh, we'll have one too to help our, help our parishioners to walk with God more. No, it was a deceptive. It was a deceptive ploy. But you know what? All three failed. They couldn't stop the monarch of books from coming. Next page. 
Now, this is where you really start to see at this time in history, there's a principle in Hosea chapter 4, verses 6 and verse 9, where God says that it shall be that as goes my leaders, the priests, so goes the people, so goes the nation. In other words, if there are men of God standing up, preaching the word of God, leading the way, discipling, evangelizing, and discipling evangelists to go out and evangelize future disciples, if there are men that are going to do that, you will see a spark across the entire nation of things happening that are just the overflow of the blessings of God. That's a principle from Hosea 4, 6, and 9, and it also goes the other way. If you don't start seeing men of God step up, you're going to see a degrade or a degradation in society. Hmm. wonder if that leads into what we're going with next week. But check out what also happens during this infamous time of history. The agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. You have the Renaissance during this time. You have great discoveries and great achievements in music and art. This is the time of Da Vinci. It's the time of Rembrandt. It's the time of Michelangelo and Donatello and Raphael and the other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is the time of Bach and Beethoven. Understand something. Most of these guys were heathens who never received Christ, but they had the freedom to be inspired because the mighty hand of Rome wasn't oppressing them. And everyone had a blessing as a result of it. Everyone shared in their benefits of their discoveries and their inventions. It was incredible. Now, point under that. Satan advances on this front in the form of psychology, which starts to rise. Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung during this time. Intellectualism. Man thinking he's smarter than God. Humanitarianism. Our good works. Hey, let's do this, this good work, but in the name of God. Thinking that that's going to achieve our way to heaven. Humanism. Same thing. Evolution. Charles Darwin shows up during this time. Political wars, etc., etc. But you know what's great about it? Even though these things start showing up here, their influence was pretty small when they all showed up. Charles Darwin was laughed at and considered a kook when he first came around. It wasn't until many years later after these guys' death that a lot of their philosophies and a lot of their intellectualism and humanistic desires started taking over and infiltrating society. Hmm. wonder if there's a correlation between their rise and men of God preaching the word of God and holding fast to the key of David going down, like Hosea 4, 6, and 9 says. And he will use these things to remove the key of David and close the door. You see, Satan realized that his plan of attack had to be revised. Which is, just so happens to be the name of the first English Bible translated from corrupt Alexandrian texts called the Revised Standard Version of 1881. You want to know something freaky? So again, to oversimplify Hosea 4, 6, and 9. As goes biblical leadership, applied to us today, the church. As goes biblical leadership, so goes the nation. Flip back over to Revelation 3. I'm going somewhere with this. Follow along. Look again in verse 8. So he's talking about this key of David, having the word of God, loving the word of God, and obeying the word of God. And he says in verse 8, I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word. Do you see here on verse 8, the implication is that as long as the church kept the key of David and possessed it, the implication is that God's going to keep the door open. So likewise, as soon as the church starts letting go of God's word and letting them fall to the ground, something that the prophet Samuel never did, you start to see God's hand closing that door ever so slowly. 
And in Hosea 4, 6 and 9, as goes the church, so goes the rest of the nation. Think about this. 1881, the first year that the Revised Standard Version comes out. Anybody know this name? Who was he? What happened in 1881? He was assassinated. The Revised Standard Version was a Bible that was translated from the corrupt Alexandrian text going all the way back to Adamantius' origin, and it was very, very popular in England. The American version of that, the American Standard Version, or the ASV, happened and was first published in 1901. Zdeller, I know you know this name. Who was he? What happened to him in 1901? Assassinated. Assassinated. You know what's really weird? And I don't share this too often. These two Bibles, the RSV and the ASV, they were purported and they became popular because in 1861... A publish called the American Bible Union Revision was published. Actually, it might have been 1860, come to think of it. No, sorry. All right, so I think the Old Testament was published in 1861, but the final was published in 1864. Who's he? If someone says he's on the $5 bill, I'm going to throw this at you. <laughs> he's on the penny. There you go. What happened to him in 1864? Assassinated. Hey, three attacks on God's word, three attacks on the nation. You see God's fingerprints starting to go on the door and starting to close it for people who tamper with the word of God. You know what's funny, though, too? And why I mention this, the guys behind these two passages were heathens. Their names were Westcott and Hort. They were into some like spiritualistic like witchcraft stuff. They were the guys behind those two versions. Uh, would they be considered to be a part of the church? Are they the bride of Christ? Have they received Christ as their Savior? Not when you look and read their testimony, and I have. The guy behind this one was a Baptist minister. He wanted to change one word in his King James Bible. And Westcott and Hort saw, huh, the Baptists are starting to monkey around with God's words? We'll go ahead and do it ourselves. Here's one for good measure. You know what happened six months before that? Prayer outlawed in schools. As goes the church, so goes the nation. You want to know why our country is going to hell in a handbasket? Let's end on a good note. I know I got 20 minutes, but I might take an hour on this one. I was kind of joking, kind of. During this time, God raised up men and women that were willing to take the words of God to the ends of the earth. These guys held fast to the key of David. It didn't matter what Satan threw at them. It didn't matter what trials they went through. They weren't letting go. God raised up men and women who were willing to take the words of God to the ends of the earth. These faithful, born-again believers did not back down when the job was offered. Who do we have here? Count Zinzendorf. There should be an N there. Count Zinzendorf. That's Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. When you see a von in a name, what does that usually mean? German. German, yes, but even more so, royalty. This guy was royalty, man. He started the Moravian Missionary Movement in Europe. You want to know the thing about the Moravians? These guys were so burdened for their fellow man, had such a brotherly love 
for lost mankind that they would take themselves, usually around 18 years old, and they had to work extra hard in the summer times to get up their funds so that they can go to a local slave driver and sell themselves into slavery. Why? So that they can have an opportunity to witness the black slaves in the holds of slave ships. These men who did that never returned home to see their families again. They couldn't even just offer themselves. They had to pay their way. They had to actually sell their own selves and raise up the funds for it. There's one such story that as these men were leaving on this boat, their families were on shore, and just as the ship was about ready to go beyond their sight, they turn around, and one of them yells back to his family, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings! That's a Philadelphian. The Moravians had a coat of arms. It's a seal, in other words. It's like a family crest. And they had an ox in the middle of the, of the seal. And next to the ox, you had a plow and you had an altar. And their motto was, ready for either. Ready to work or to lay my life down as a sacrifice. Either or. That's who Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf is. About John Bunyan. He was a Baptist minister who was imprisoned for his faith in America. Yes, during a time when here in America, if you weren't a part of the Church of England, you were imprisoned and, and persecuted for your faith. And during his time there, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It was this beautiful allegory. It was almost like a, like a, a C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, kind of a metaphor for the Christian life and the battle of man's soul. The place called Man's Soul. Man's Soul. Encouraged many, countless others. Jonathan Edwards, a minister up in New England, a fireball of a preacher. He preached a message that is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He wrote out his entire message and he read it monotone. By the time he was done reading in a monotone voice his message, he had parishioners in his church clinging onto the pews because they were afraid that the earth was going to open them up and swallow them up just as God did Korah in Numbers 16. They were fearful, afraid of the judgment and the wrath of God upon their sin because they were not right with Him. You know what the secret to his success was? He spent the entire night before completely bathing that message in prayer. Didn't get a wink of sleep. That's him. John Wesley, famous Methodist circuit rider. He rode around, I think it was 240,000 miles on horseback, and he wrote a book about every thousand miles he would write a new book. So it was about 230 books that he ended up reading or writing by the time he was done. Published countless tracts, preached the gospel everywhere he went on horseback. His brother Charles, many of our hymns that we sing today come from his brother Charles. You know what was interesting about Charles? Charles was so burdened to have a prison ministry that he would lock himself up in jail to be with prisoners. And prisoners back in England during that time, in their prisons, they would have rats this big, so big that the guards had dogs just to fend themselves off from the rats. Charles Wesley's like, I'll sing hymns to these prisoners. If that means you have to throw me into the dungeon with those rats, I'll do it. Because I want, I love these people. I love my fellow brethren so much. I want them to hear what God did for them. That's a Philadelphian. George Whitfield man who helped lead the Great Awakening in American history, it's called. He would ride around also, just like uh, uh, John Wesley. He started the Great Awakening in England. George Whitfield would do it here in America. It was said of George Whitfield that he would preach in a steady rain for an hour and a half and people miles away could hear him like a pin drop because the entire audience of hundreds of thousands of people would be so still and silent and listening to him and every word he was preaching. 
He could be heard from miles away. That's power. That's power of someone who possesses the key of David and who loves the Word of God and obeys the Word of God and is not letting go. David Brainerd. He's actually the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. David Brainerd was a young man, got saved. He was an orphan, and he got saved by reading his Bible that his parents left him all by himself, decided to become a missionary at the age of 19. And he went to the Native Americans. He had such a burden for the Native Americans here in America that he would ride around. And you know what's interesting? Didn't really get a lot of converts. Didn't have a lot of converts. He's kind of like a modern-day Jeremiah. Not a lot of converts at all. But he kept going. It was said of him, I like this guy, I relate to this guy. It was said of him that when he got done preaching, that his entire clothes would be drenched in sweat. There were times, too, he even wrote it in his journal, that he would get done praying and the snow would be completely melted around him because of his intercession and the heat thereof. And man, David Brainerd, he died at the ripe old age of 29. Not a lot of converts. Not a whole lot to show. By today's standards, a complete and utter failure. By today's standards. But his journal that he kept, of everything that God did, he published that, and Jonathan Edwards, his father-in-law, got it out to the rest of the world, and a lot of the missionaries that you're going to see here on the rest of this list were inspired to go to the field because of what that man wrote. And so all of the fruit that came from all of those future ministries go back to him. You might think you're not a success. You stay faithful to God and you stay faithful to His Word. He will do things that you can't explain even if you don't see the result of it now. Billy Bray, a drunkard and a brawler who found Christ and started to become a preacher. Sounds like somebody I know who started this church. Robert Morrison, Peter Parker, no, this is not the metaverse. This is not the multiverse. It's not Spider-Man. He's a missionary to Canton, China. Adoniram Judson. Let me tell you a little bit about Adoniram Judson. Can I? Adoniram Judson grew up in a Christian home. Anybody here like that? Grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents who loved him, read in the Bible, preached the Word of God, raised him right, and then he went off to college. And there at college, he met a very influential man named Ernest, who became his very best friend. And Ernest turned Adoniram Judson into an intellectual atheist. Broke his parents' heart. One day, Adoniram Judson is traveling through the country, and he stops to an inn, a hotel, to stay for the night. And he goes up to the innkeeper and says, I need a room. The innkeeper said, oh man, I gotta tell you, the only room I have left, there's this guy next door. And I'm telling you, he's about to die. He's screaming. He is pleading for his life. He's just not in a good position. He is on his last leg. Adoniram Judson says, I'll take the room. You see, I have no fear of death, for I am an atheist. Adoniram takes the room. And it's not too long before he's tossing and turning in his bed all night long listening to the screams and the cries of the man in the room next to him, dying, taking his last breaths in agonizing pain, thinking about all those lessons his mom and dad taught him. What if there actually is something after death? What if I'm wrong? What if this intellectual atheism that I got in college, is, it's, it's all for naught? And as he's contemplating these things, before he knows it, Absolute silence next door. He wakes up the next morning, probably only have 30 minutes sleep, goes to the innkeeper, and the innkeeper is taking care of the body, getting ready to bury the guy, and as Adoniram Judson goes up, he looks down and sees that it's his good friend Ernest, a man who led him to atheism, dying in the door next to him, and he could have given him the hope of the gospel. But he didn't. And now Ernest is forever separated from his Lord and Creator. Adoniram gets convicted in his heart, 
returns back home to mom and dad and gives his life over to Christ. He then becomes a Baptist minister, goes off to Burma. And while in Burma, he buries his wife and his two kids and everything he has. But he keeps pressing forward. He doesn't stop. He doesn't return back home. What would possess a man or a woman to do something like that? 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 2 Corinthians 12.10 Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then am I what? Strong. That's Adoniram Judson. William Carey, we did him a couple years ago at the missions conference. Seven years on the field, didn't get one convert. But he kept going. Don't give up. Keep knocking at the door of that person or that kid or that teacher or that family member and that cousin who won't come to church or won't come to church camp. Keep knocking. 42 years he was on the mission field without a break. He translated the Bible into 44 languages and dialects in India. George Mueller. Time fails me to tell you of George Mueller. I actually had to write this down because I couldn't keep it all in my head. He prayed in seven and a half million dollars. We're talking seven and a half million dollars by 1800 standards, by the way. He prayed in over his entire time as a missionary, seven and a half million dollars to feed 2,000 orphans on a daily basis. He passed out 111 million tracts throughout his life. Where are we at as solid? 992 million? Not even close? Okay. He passed out 300,000 Bibles, all while supporting 163 missionaries. And he documented throughout his life 50,000 answers to prayer. People would walk down the street. They would see George Mueller, and they're like, Honey, look, look, there he is. There's the man who gets things from God. That's what he was known for. What are you known for? David Livingstone covered him also a couple years ago at the missions conference. He was a man who left his practice, his medical practice, to go to the field of Africa. And he was so burdened to try to do whatever he could to get an open door with the villagers that he went hunting with them after these village lions who were taking all of their crops and killing their people. And the course of him going out hunting, you guys remember what happened in the story? He got attacked by these lions suffered 11 teeth mark scars and a few scratches from the claws but he got his lions and he got another lion that day the enemy the lion that roareth about walketh about seeking whom he may devour he left that camp with what Livingstone did that day and Livingstone finally had an opportunity to share Christ with these villagers they finally listened and if he was willing to suffer and to bleed for them then they'll listen to whatever he has to say. Are you willing to suffer and bleed for those you're around? <sighs> i got to ask myself that question. They buried his heart. They cut out his heart when he died and buried it there because that's where it really belonged. Hudson Taylor, he's a missionary to China. He went as far as to actually adopt the culture of China, not in a sinful way, but actually went... I mean, think about what English people looked like in the 1800s. Now picture somebody going and an Englishman and tying their head in a knot, which was something that was a fashion in the culture of China during then, and wearing the long garbs of Chinese culture then. He adopted to their culture. He didn't try to go over there and make China into Britain or into England. He went as far as like, you know what? If I want these people to hear me, I'm going to adapt to their culture. And when I immerse myself in their culture... Not sinfully, but when I immerse myself in their culture, maybe I'll have an open door. And God opened it. Why? Because he had a key to unlock that door that no man could shut. Hudson Taylor. C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd had a quote. Man, lived up to his name, let me tell you. Some wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within one yard of hell. 
pretty intense, isn't it? It means it's not going to be comfortable. It means it's not going to be easy. It means you're going to want to quit and go where it's nice and comfy and cozy. Not him. So maybe you're in a position where it feels like your life is a hell right now. Maybe that's exactly where you need to be to reach whoever is that one strand, that one string away from losing out on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ forever. And maybe you're there to stop them from going there and to pull them out of the fire. So embrace whatever horrible situation you might find yourself in and see how God can use it for His glory like He did with so many of these guys. And there's so many countless others. We could, if time fails to talk about all of the American patriots that God used and how we came up with the First Amendment. You ever look at those five freedoms that are in there? Sounds an awful lot like a Bible-believing church. The freedom to speak whatever you want unmolested. The freedom to print whatever you want without the government interfering. The freedom to petition just as we petition our Lord in prayers. The freedom to assemble. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10 says. And the freedom to believe and worship God freely. American patriots got it from Baptist ministers who rushed to Congress to get them to stop preaching or to stop enacting the Articles of Confederation, which would have been our Constitution had those Baptist ministers not stopped and opened up the book and showed them, here's why. Because if we don't have these five freedoms guaranteeing our freedom and our security, then what's to say another England isn't going to come around and you guys are going to be it? Because trust us, we just went through a thousand years of this in Rome. Point number two to close. It's a guy by the name of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary during this time. During our time, not during the Philadelphian time, sorry. He has a great list of quotes here that are just incredible. I want to draw your attention to the last one. Because I look at these stories of all of these missionaries. Man, this one hits home. He says, we are so utterly ordinary. He's speaking about us the day and age in which you and I live in. We are so commonplace. While we profess to know the power the 20th century does not reckon with, but we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men, but... Brass. Outspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us because we are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. When you hear those stories of what some of these missionaries and these pastors went through, tell me your heart doesn't bleed for that. Tell me you don't want to see God doing that in your midst. When you really think about it, I know you do. I know I do. But what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to sacrifice to not be a Laodicean, but to be a Philadelphian during this Laodicean time? Turn back to Revelation 3 as we close. The correction that he gives, to fill in your blank, <laughs> none. So what do you do? Continue, endure, press on, hold fast to what you have, and overcome. Look again at verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. You got a Bible in your lap? Hold fast to it and don't let it go. Don't let anyone strip you of it. That no man take thy crown. Remember the judgment seat's coming. Where you're going to be rewarded for crowns for your service in this life as a believer. What are you going to have to give back to his feet? Verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. We just went through the testimony of several pillars. You realize that you in here today, you can be a pillar doesn't matter where you come from, what's going on in your life now. You can be one of these pillars in this day and age when it seems like there are none. That can be you. 
So the application for Bible believers, love God's words, believe God's words, obey God's words, and never compromise. Never give in to what the world has to offer you because it's filthy rags. It's sinking sand. It's wood, hay, and stubble. Hold fast to the purified words of God. He will never let you down. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, God. We're getting to the point in our study where the question I originally asked is, do you wonder? Do you wonder how close we are to the end? Do you wonder if everything the Bible has to say is true? We're getting to that part where we're going to answer that question. And I hate it because today was really the last good night. We got through all this darkness to get a little glimpse of light and we're back to chaos next week for the rest of the study. And I hate it. But I'm reminded, it doesn't have to be the case with us. Yes, we're living in the day and the age of the church of the closed door right now because by and large, the church has forsaken your word. But we are members in particular, you remind us. And that while the church as a whole might be lukewarm and Laodicean, caring more about their rights and what they want to do, that doesn't have to be the case with each individual in this room today. So I ask you, if it be at all possible for us to be overcomers and to be pillars as Philadelphians who exude brotherly love and a love and unfeigned faith towards the brethren, I pray that you would make it to where we would have that and that we would live that out daily. Because we don't know the day and the hour which are coming back, but we know it soon. So may we get busy and may we be these pillars. Because we got this cloud of witness that we just read of all of these missionaries, the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that are cheering us on to run the race with patience and to keep up and to not faint in the day of adversity. So let us run. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us look to Him. It's all pointing at what you're going to do at camp. And I love it. Because I couldn't come up with this myself. It had to be you. We love you, Father. Pray tomorrow we would attack this world with everything we got, with the sword of the Spirit, with the key of David. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.